You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The cross of Christ, as portrayed by Paul in this book, is both despised and wonderful. It's both unbelievable and believable to believers. And as we, as we walk through the rest of chapter 1 and begin chapter 2, and we see Paul begin to develop more his argument, not argument, I guess his, his teaching to the Corinthians who were, who, were, who were indolent and aggressive towards one another and unkind. They took each other to court. They struggled with the idea of, of um, intellect over revelation of God. As we walk through more of that, as we see ourselves in that, let us come to the Lord and ask Him to, to remove that from us. Um, to think that once a person becomes saved, everything becomes roses is to be foolish indeed. It would be nice. But the flesh hangs on. And the flesh hung on in these Corinthians in such a way that they have become almost a byword. But I would say that today it's not much different. There's nothing new under the sun. Those, there are plenty in the world today who could be called Corinthian. Um, I'm grateful for the teaching in this church. Every Sunday morning I'm, I'm blessed and I'm encouraged and I'm, cho- I'm challenged and I'm convicted. And all of those things happen. And that's what Paul is trying to do to the Corinthians. There are believers listening to him and there are unbelievers listening to him. The believers will get it because of their intellect, right? No. Because of the Holy Spirit. They're not better than the unbelievers. They're just to- chosen. And so as we, as we focus on that, as we think about that, going through this, this, the rest of this chapter and the early part of chapter 2, let's just remember that. That everything we have is a gift. So finishing up chapter 1, let's start at about verse 22 and we'll read through the end of the chapter. <coughs> For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So last week we finished with the fake word by Celsus. He called it the true word. And what it was, was he was, that the, the people of the second century, especially the Greek philosophers, were mocking the Christians because they accepted into their ranks, if you will. Actually, God sovereignly moved into their ranks the weak, 
the unimpressive, the not noble, the ignoble, if you will. And so they actually formulated little, uh, a little manifest about the rules that were laid down by these Christians. The only way you can become a Christian is if you're, if you're uninstructed, you're not wise, you're not prudent, because all of those prudence, wisdom, and instruction would be qualifications that are deemed evil by us Christians, which is far from the truth. Um, the wisdom of God is far removed from the wisdom of men. And Paul has set about at the beginning and in the middle of this chapter, and now as we go through chapter 2, even more, reminding the Corinthians that it's the wisdom of God that needs to be elevated. And so in verse 27, it says, He chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and he chose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And we talked about that, (coughs) remembering that the things that the world values, like intellect, wealth, notoriety, and position, God values faith. He values his son. He chooses those whom the world ignores. And I'm grateful for that. This is not to say that the intelligent, wealthy, well-known, and well-positioned cannot be saved. Of course they can. But it is to say that those who are deemed to the world by the world to be foolish because of their simple faith in Christ, they are actually the wise. And not of their own doing. It is a gift of God. So verse 28, 1 Corinthians verse one, chapter 1, verse 28, and coming upon after, starting with verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. Verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. Verse 28, which we'll look at this morning, And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that are. And so, nullify is to render idle, unemployed, inactive, to inactivate, to render it inoperative, to cause a person or thing to have no further efficiency, to deprive of force or influence or power, to annul, to bring to naught. So God has chosen the weak things, the base things of the world, to bring to naught the things that are. And that's going to be, uh, that will finally happen when Christ returns. But as we are responsible to bring the word of God to the world, let us remember to bring the word of God to the world because that is what will actually inactivate the elevated things, the things that think they're something. And, but we don't think so sometimes. We think we need to add to it. We think we need to create some program or music or something that'll assist God's word because it's so weak, it just can't do the job. And that's what Paul was dealing with here. So, it's the lowborn, those of no account that are chosen. And their choosing is done for many reasons, known only to God. But one of those reasons is that he wants to bring to nothing the things and people that think they are something. And we are not to gloat over that. That's not something about which we should take pride and, and laugh at the world. It should be a source of, of driving us to our knees to pray for those whom we wish to be chosen of God. Because it is not our desire to see anyone go to hell. We would love, it wouldn't it be nice if everyone could be saved, but that's just not going to happen. But let it not be something that we would take pride in. Uh, I don't know if I can overemphasize this, that the things in this world that seem to gather the most attention and have the most influence are nothing in the eyes of heaven. 
And it must be so, for the one who was the most despised brought about salvation. And he, in fact, is the most powerful being in the universe, because that's what we know, the universe. But the universe itself is a creation of him. Smaller to him, probably, than this book. I, you, can't, you can only anthropomorphize stuff so much, and then it becomes unintelligible. So I'll leave that alone. He's the most powerful being in the universe. He, he created it, and yet by today's standards, he's nothing. So, in the words of Paul, nothing is everything, and everything is nothing. The, word of, the world of Paul's day was overturned by this, and so it is today. Verse 28, the base things and the despised things God has chosen that might nullify the things that are. Any questions or comments about verse 28? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. It matters not whether the boaster is a godless, self-important potentate or a preacher of the gospel. What God has done, he has done so that no one may boast, but he gets the glory. If you trust in your own wisdom, your own righteousness, your own strength, you will come to nothing, Paul is saying. The glory that attends salvation is God's alone, and he will share it with no one. In Isaiah, says, I am Jehovah, and my glory will I not share with anyone. The glory that attends salvation is his. We should not elevate even his messengers. Even the truly sanctified messengers that he has raised up, all glory must go to God. Any wisdom that he imparts to his followers is a gift. The righteousness that he clothes us in because of the work that God, that the Son did, is a gift. The understanding that comes after salvation is a gift. No one earned any of these, and no one can boast. So as the Christian becomes, as the Christian goes through his life, he becomes more devoted. And as he becomes more devoted, he begins to gain in a proper sense, more enlightenment into understanding God's word by the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Salvation then is something now, in, the, in today's world, this, this word has a negative connotation, but in, in, the, in, the, in the gospel, in sanctification, it has a positive connotation. <laughs> that was a, a, what do you call that, a spoiler, I guess. Salvation is something of a progressive, in the right way, work. As we work out our salvation in fear and trembling, so we add to our faith virtue and then knowledge and then self-control and on it goes as we become more and more useful in the work that the Father has called us to. Every one of those blessed gifts that are added are given to us by the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. So if Peter says, now for this very reason all, also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and in your moral excellence knowledge and in your knowledge self-control and in your self-control perseverance and in your perseverance godliness and in your godliness brotherly kindness and in your brotherly kindness love for if these qualities are yours and are increasing they render you neither useless if you're not useless what are you? Useful. They render you useful. I'm not putting scripture in God's mouth. I don't mean to do that but we can look at the reverse of that statement. If they render you not use, if they render you neither useless nor unfruitful, then what they are rendering you is useful and fruitful in true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that, that, isn't, that you get faith and then after that you add moral excellence. Before you can, before you can uh, persevere or practice self-control, you better have moral excellence. That's not what I'm saying. This is, these are the qualities that the Holy Spirit will add to your life in full measure, as full a measure as you will gain throughout your life and all of us will fall, but the righteous person gets back up, it says in Proverbs. 
So I'm not saying that this is a stepping stone, that you have to have this before you have to have that, before you have to have this. These are a group of, of qualities that God works into the life of the believer after salvation and makes them useful. Usefulness is the end of and the reason for gifts. Now, the word gifts will have special import when we get to chapter, 12, chapter 9 and chapter 12. Uh, but we're going, I'm going to leave that thunder unstolen, if you will. These gifts, everything, moral excellence, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love, those are all qualities that the Holy Spirit imparts to the believer after salvation. And the reason is so that you become useful and fruitful. Useful and fruitful. Do you, can you imagine someone useful in the work of God who did not have love? Who did not have perseverance? Who did not have godliness? Two varying degrees as they learn it. But the point is, these things will be added. Any comments or questions about verse 29? Verse 30. Very, very... Well, it's like all of the verses are very important. But in verse 30, he says, But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who did it? Why are you in Christ Jesus? Well, I trusted God. I did it. I came to Him on my... No, he says, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. It's a marvelous work that God has done by giving us salvation. We're also then given wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, final redemption. The wisdom and ongoing and developing understanding and delight in the word of God is a marvelous thing. We begin to see and understand the connections that are made when we do or don't follow God's prescription. Not out of legalistic desire to earn a notch in our Christian gun, but, but, but in devotion to Him, in devotion to what He's called us to do, in devotion to becoming useful and fruitful. <laughs> the righteousness that we need to enter heaven is simply placed on us like a, like a new set of clothes. Boom. It's done. That's salvation. You are a new creature. You are righteous in the sight of God. The older is thrown away, and we are made righteous instantaneously at salvation by Christ. Our sanctification, a day by day, week by week, year by year growing, is, is that redemption that is happening. It's His doing as well, and it's a wonder. And so things that we would never have done, God begins to work out in our lives by the work of His Holy Spirit. Our devotion to Him grows, and our delight to do His bidding grows, and our redemption, instantaneous in one sense at salvation, is consummated at the redemption of our body. In Romans 8.23 it says, And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, salvation, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. When the rest of the flesh falls away, when salvation is complete, when we go to be in, with Christ, and there's no more tears, no more groaning, no more worries, don't we all long for that? Yeah, note well, though, again, and this can't be said enough. And if it becomes irritating, I'll try to figure out a way to say it different. But we did not do this ourselves. Having, Paul stipulates that it's by his doing, the doing of the Father. And because of that doing, 
We are in Christ Jesus, and he became, he became to us and in us and through us by the work of his Holy Spirit. He became wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. It's a work of God to begin, from beginning to end. And so we're going to see in verse 30, we see in verse 30 just what we can brag about. What can you brag about? Paul was urging the Corinthians to give proper credit for their salvation, their righteousness, their sanctification, their wisdom, and their final redemption to God the Father, to the Son. He was urging them, stop ascribing it to your intellect, to your better than, I'm better than him, I'm smarter than him, I've read more, I know more philosophy. Stop ascribing it to that. It was a gift. It is by his doing you are in Christ Jesus. And, and while that just sounds like a phrase, to the Corinthians it could have been jarring. It's something that I think has to be brought to us throughout our lives. Remind, we, have, we need to be reminded from time to time. It is by His doing. It is not by my doing. I'm reminding us. I'm reminding me. Jim. And so He must. Because if it becomes a, a question of the wisdom of some man or some person, then when He demonstrates Himself unwise somewhere, we will falter. It's, it's, and the message of the cross, as I've tried to point out, and Jim gave me a chapter to read this week my, for homework, and uh, I haven't done the book report on it yet, but basically it was what we've talked about earlier, that the, cro- the message of the cross was foolish, and Paul didn't water it down. He came to them with the, the cross of Christ, which, in, and I've talked to you about that. How, how about if I came before a group of people that had never heard of it and said, I want to talk to you about the electric chair, about the firing squad, about hanging, about lethal injection, the message of lethal injection. That's what Paul was saying in those days. This is the method of how criminals, the lowest dregs of society, are executed. Romans weren't executed this way. This was reserved for people who committed treason, people who were vicious, wicked, evil, scum of society. These were the people that were hung on crosses. And uh, so when Paul brought this to the Corinthians, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, for different reasons, it was foolish. It was a foolish message. Our Messiah would never be that weak that he would be killed by the Roman government. And the, and the, and the, the Gentiles, you want us to believe in a guy who couldn't even save himself? He was, he was so low that the Romans actually used the only method... They used a method of execution that they reserved for the lowest of society for him. And you want us... Paul didn't water that down. And so therefore, it is the Holy Spirit and it is purely a work of God that anybody is saved. 1 Corinthians one thirty one. Just so that, just that it is written, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul quotes Jeremiah here. And we're reminded again that bragging rights belong to God. Jeremiah 9... 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And throughout Scripture, the admonition of bragging or boasting is applied only appropriately to God. Psalm or Jeremiah 4.2 And you will swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness. Then the nations will bless themselves in Him and in Him they will glory. Psalm 44.8 In God we have boasted all day long and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. Romans 5.11 And not only this, but we also exult in God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Received the reconciliation. Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Bragging rights are God's alone. If, if you are blessed by a teacher, give the glory to God. That teacher got it from the Lord. And I'm going to use this, I'm going to use it early, but I'm going to use this illustration again. But what a teacher is, is someone climbing a hill and reaching back and helping you up. And sometimes he's the one helping you forward, and sometimes you're the one helping him forward. None of us have exclusive rights. God does it all, and he does it through his children. He does it by the Holy Spirit, so that, just as it is written, whoever's on the hill above, boast in the Lord. Whoever's on the hill below, boast in the Lord. That's where the boasting belongs. And so the chapter ends, Paul has in the beginning of this epistle, and, and as, as you're so well instructed here uh, by the preaching, we know that somewhere in the ninth century, the, chapter verses, the chapters and verses were, were built into this. And that this was an arbitrary place to, to choose to end chapter 1. But it's a pretty good one. I like it. It'll do. And so as this chapter ends, Paul has worked his way through encouragement, begging, admonition, surprise, multiple hyperbole, and direction. He thanks God for the Corinthians and he acknowledges that they are a gifted church. But early on, he begins reminding them that their gifts, their salvation, are in fact gifts from God and that bragging rights belong to him. He would have them in their contentions trust not in their own abilities and learn to be grateful that they, the foolish things of the world, were chosen by God. Nobody likes to be called foolish. It's just not our favorite thing to be called. Well, you're foolish. Chapter 2. We're going to read all of chapter 2. So, if you will with me, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 16. And, and so Paul says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, speaking of that, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, and by implication, even my wisdom, Paul's saying, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. <coughs> Excuse me. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. Because if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Because just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. And which have not entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us... God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man, which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. 
Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And a natural man, but a natural man, does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. What a full chapter. Paul will continue his teaching around the subject of wisdom versus revelation and the subject of understanding. Corinthian philosophers and believers and unbelievers in the Corinthian church were convinced that they could understand with their mind everything that needed to be understood about the great questions of life. Paul, however, spends this chapter reminding them that without the Holy Spirit of God, nothing of import would be understood nor known. The Corinthians must learn to depend upon the Spirit of God for their understanding and their sanctification, just as they depended upon and trusted Him for their salvation. Salvation, wisdom, and all of those things are a work of the Spirit in the believer's life. And so in verse 1 he says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Echoing what um, he said in the first chapter, verse 17, Paul alludes to the fact that words don't have to be perfect, though eloquence may be appreciated. He comes with a message of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion of Christ, not with some superficial, persuasive, and sophisticated, profound oratory. Paul knew that, as Barclay said, Barclay, this is a quote, Corinth put a premium on the veneer of false rhetoric and thin thinking, unquote. He would not cater to that. He would not cater to false rhetoric and thin thinking. He came with the testimony that God had given him. In the final analysis, we can only testify to what we've seen. And, we, and what we actually know. In a court of law, this is the rule. <clears throat> There's no speculation or guesswork here. Paul has been given a revelation from God after his Damascus Road uh, experience. And this revelation is what he brought to Corinth. He was, ass- he was assuring the Corinthians that he was not bringing his own guesswork or, or sanctified opinions. He was bringing them facts. This is the task of the, of the preacher to accurately and faithfully proclaim the testimony of God. Certainly, art forms can be used, such as anecdote, allegory, current events, etc., but these must be accessories to the proclaiming of actual Scripture. Later, Paul told Timothy that he was to, quote, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to excitation and teaching, unquote. And one of the main reasons for this, Paul said, was because, especially in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. But realize this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, that in the last days... Difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. Does that sound like today? No, people love everyone else. Men will be lovers of money. No, there's none of that here around here. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Boy, I could really, I could preach a sermon on that. 
but I won't. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Irreconcilable. Some people, you can't apologize to them. It just, no matter what you do, you you were wrong, you apologize, and they are still going to drive the nail in. Irreconcilable. Malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And then in 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come to take care of this, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. Historically and today, many, not here, and I'm grateful for that, many congregations do not want to hear the unadulterated Word of God. One commentator put this way, he said, In periods of unsettled faith, skepticism, and mere curious speculation in matters of religion, teachers of all kinds swarm like the flies in Egypt. What a great picture. The demand creates the supply. The law of supply and demand. The demand for these kind of teachers creates the supply. The hearers invite and shape their own preachers. If the people desire a calf to work, a ministerial calf worker is readily found. Calf maker. A ministerial calf maker is readily found. And so a congregation that desires the unadulterated word of God will hold their preacher's feet to the fire to give them that. Thank you for doing that. Fortunately, there are many congregations, like I said, including this one, that have a hunger for scripture. In the study of scripture, there is great reward. And the, the uh, psalmist mentioned this. He said, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. But we don't brag about that. The boasting goes to God. For they are ever mine. I have more insight than all of my teachers. For your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age because I have observed your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances. For you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. This is what brought Paul to Corinth. More understanding than the aged. Restraining evil. Following the path God has outlined and a desire for the sweetness of the words of God. In ancient Greece, when a speaker of renown came to a city, he would advertise a meeting. And in that advertisement, he would generally praise the city. I come to the wonderful city of Athens to be the smartest guy here. He would draw a crowd. Should he draw a crowd, I guess I should say, that he was satisfied with, then he would stick around and gather adherence and continue to speak. Paul did no such thing. He came with the testimony, or as it says in some other ancient manuscripts, the mystery of God. Either word effectively describes what he was doing. He came without the announcement. He came without the gathering of adherence that was necessary for him to stick around. He came to preach the gospel. He came to give it straight to the Corinthians. Because they needed it straight. They needed the medicine of the word. Comments? Questions? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This can be misunderstood. Well, that's not up there. Um, Verse 2. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. He's not saying that he only spoke about the crucifixion. 
that he only preached about the atonement. In Acts chapter 20, verse 27, he declared indeed that he taught the whole truth of God, the whole counsel. Acts 20, 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. What he is saying is that everything he taught, like planets around the sun, revolves around Jesus Christ and his crucifixion and his resurrection. So indeed, a sermon may not touch on a crucifixion, but the church that does not have a steady and reliable diet of teaching about the incredible gift that God has given through his son in the way that that gift was given is a church destined for post-Christianity. Everything that comes from the pulpit should revolve, if you will picture that, around the crucifixion, the resurrection, the work that Christ did, like planets revolve around the sun. That's, that's the central point, and the gravity that holds them in place, that holds it all in place, is the preaching of the cross. If you are studying through the book of Numbers, it may be that the crucifixion of Christ will not specifically come up, but there will certainly be scriptural allusions and connections to the gift of salvation. Jesus himself told the Jewish listeners in John chapter 5 and 539, he said, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. The scriptures testify about him. What were they searching? The Old Testament. The Corinthians desperately needed a return from philosophy to a proper grounding in Scripture, and that's what Paul brought. What the Corinthians needed, what every Christian needs, and what the unbeliever needs to hear is a message that comes through a messenger in such a way that the messenger becomes unnoticed because the message is so wonderful. D.A. Carson put it this way. What Paul avoided was artificial communication that one plaudits for the speaker but distracted from the message. Lazy preachers have no right to appeal to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, to justify indolence or laziness in, in the, study, care, the study and careless delivery in the pulpit. These verses do not prohibit diligent preparation, passion, clear articulation, and persuasive presentation. Rather, they warn against any method that leads people to say, what a marvelous preacher, rather than what a marvelous savior. When someone paints a portrait, and I talked about this before, or a landscape, careful intention must be given to the frame so that it does not distract from the painting. If the onlooker notices the frame unduly, then the frame was incorrectly constructed and designed. Everything about the painting should focus on the subject of the painting. In the same way, we must decrease so that he will increase. What is, when you're working on a message, working on a method, I hate to use the word method, but methods are okay, of bringing the gospel, bringing the teaching of the word of God to people, the focus must be on what Christ has done, on the glory of the cross, on the unbelievable, marvelous gifts that have been given to his people through no work of their own. Many people will use uh, different ways of doing it, and that's fine. And you may, all of us have our favorite preachers, our favorite people that we like to listen to. But it must be because they make the Word of God clear. It must be because they, they direct us and cause our love of the Savior to grow. Not just because they use 14-syllable words and know what they mean. Are there 14? Probably in chemistry there are 14-syllable words. Any comments or questions about verse 2? We'll probably finish up real quick here. Weakness and trembling, fear. Paul said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He's not saying that he was weak and terrified and shaking in his boots in fear of the Corinthians. 
You guys just scared me to death. It's not what he was saying. The weakness was the purported weakness of the message, the gospel. The society looked at it as a weak message. The fear and trembling were caused by his deep desire to see the gospel take root in the hearts of the unbelievers at Corinth and to see it effect the sanctification in the lives of the believers in Corinth. He wasn't afraid it couldn't. He was concerned that it must. And how could he facilitate that? By God's grace, by God's moving. He had a deep concern over the issues that were being raised in Corinth because of their lack of spirituality, proper spirituality. Um, rejection of the gospel results in terrible consequences, both in the unbeliever, but especially, and, and as well, I should say, in the believer. And this would provoke fear and trembling in someone who had a great love for people who were rejecting it. You've seen people reject the gospel or the teachings of scripture who you knew were believers and you knew what was coming. You know that nobody escapes when they, when they do not do as God has desired for them. It's going to be a problem, isn't it? Nobody, and, and that's why <laughs> when you're raising your children and you try to say, you know, I did that and it didn't work out for me. Well, yeah, Dad, but uh, I'm smarter than you. Yeah, I know you are. And that's good. But gravity's still real. Don't step off that building. Or some variation of that. All of us have seen friends who are believers reject some aspect of God's call in their life, resulting in consequences that they could have avoided. And Paul saw that. It's also likely that Paul was aware of his own personal inadequacies. <laughs> and this would cause him concern as well. Any wide-awake preacher of the gospel, teacher, knows about their own inadequacies, wonders if they're presenting, asks God to help them present in a way that will minister Christ to the hearers. All of us should recognize those internal difficulties and trust the Holy Spirit to do what is necessary to bring truth to those who are to teach, counsel, and manage, and encourage. My boss, I would... It was hard for me to delegate years ago. Still, I still struggle with it. And one of the things he used to tell me all the time, especially in, in spiritual things, he'd say, you know, the Holy Spirit was managing just fine before you came along. And, and he could get away with that. Not very many people in my life, wife could get away with that, but he could. And you know what? Boy, was he right. And the Holy Spirit will continue to manage just fine without me. So my desire is that whatever I do up here points you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Points you to the cross. The despised message of the ages. The stupid message of the ages. The weak message of the ages. As atheists, you guys believe in a guy who couldn't even save himself. Not only could he have saved himself, he could have wrapped the universe around his finger and flicked it into eternity. But he didn't. He stayed on the cross. He despised that shame, the shame of the cross. And he became the captain of our salvation. And for that, I will be eternally grateful. So Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Let us tremble for those who reject the gospel. Let us not be haughty and sanctimonious. Well, we believed. Why don't you? Remember before. I was saved in my 20s. So I remember before. Late teens, early 20s. No, I can't put an exact date to it. I wish I could. When I get there... God will say, well, it was right there, and that's fine. But I do know this. There was a before, 
and there's an after. And you know, you've, others have experienced the fear and trembling for you. We experience the fear and trembling for others. So let us be in prayer for those that we know that need this saving word, whether they're believers or unbelievers, that need to recognize the work that Christ has done and can do for them. And let's pray for them. Let's close in prayer. Father, there's nothing too strong, nothing too difficult for you. You have made it clear that everything we need for godliness and living in Christ has been given to us by him through the Holy Spirit. And so as we look at others and we see them struggling or unwilling or irreconcilable, as some of the scripture says, let us start with prayer on our knees. And then let us, as you guide and as you direct, bring to them the cross, the cross of Christ. For it is the only thing that can change them, whether they be saved or unsaved. It is still the only thing that can change the direction a person is walking. And we are so grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.